Hebrews chapter 9. Um, I have, uh, I've just asked for a, a little slideshow uh, just um, to be up while I preach. Very unusual for me, I know. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, and, and once again, I, I feel this turning on of a fire hose, uh, trying to drink of that fire hose myself in my study, and I feel like I come here and I, I turn it on and blasted it back at you. Uh, but it's, uh, it's been good, I believe. And uh, we're in uh, Hebrews 9, and this is shocking to you. Um, I am going to finish Hebrews 9 today, and so two, two messages only for this long chapter. Uh, and the same plan for that in Hebrews chapter 10. I am intending to finish uh, this book uh, well before the end of the year. Uh, so, we have a theme today. We have a theme at the end of uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verses 15 to 28. Perhaps you've noticed, perhaps you haven't, but have you ever noticed how much talk about blood there is in the church? And it's very easy if you've grown up in church to get used to all this talk about blood. And perhaps if you haven't, you come in and it's a, it's a real shock to the system to hear all this discussion about blood. And in this church, as we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, um, there's just constant mention of blood. And I actually find myself uh, at times just uh, just being struck by the fact you know, let's let's take together the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that is not a normal thing, uh, unless if you're not in uh, in the church. And so it's, it's not just the Lord's Supper. We, we we sing songs about blood. We 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 sing songs about sacrifices, and and then you've got the Bible. Doesn't matter where you are in this book. You put your finger in it somewhere. There's going to be discussion about blood a page or two either side. Many of us find blood gross and uh, disgusting. I have a I have a son who uh, gets the smallest cut on his finger, sees blood, and begins to scream. Um, and I know many people feel that way. You know, that just blood just grosses us out. Uh, some of you are nurses, and you're not you're not bothered. But um, but for the Christian. We don't get to escape mentions of blood. It's, it's just everywhere in our religion. And so the writer of Hebrews has been discussing worship under the Old Covenant. Uh, I, I can't just recap everything that's been preached over the last year, every sermon, but the writer of Hebrews, kind of from uh, Hebrews 8 onwards, has been discussing worship under the Old covenant system with, with the tabernacle and its priesthood, and he's been contrasting it with Jesus' ministry as our great high priest, seated at the right hand of the Father, who brings us to God. That's what priests do. They go from man to God, and he brings us better promises under the new covenant. You can read all about that in Hebrews uh, chapter 8. And then in the, the, the second half of 
Hebrews chapter 9, we're getting into a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant being the way that God relates to His people in the time of Jesus Christ, well, since the time of Jesus Christ. And this there's a comparison between Old and New Covenant with similarities and with differences. And in the second half of Hebrews 9 here, the comparison seems to center around blood. So that's what we're going to be talking about, blood. I'm not going to be uh, walking through this text from, from, from start to finish, but trying to pull out, pull out some of the arguments uh, that are found uh, in the text. And we're going to look at three different questions. The first question is, what was the purpose of blood? Second question is, why was the blood effective? And then the third question is, how was blood effective? Right? So that's, that's what we're doing. Uh, there's a few little sub-points there. They're, they're on the board. You know what I'm going to say. Uh, so we're going to pull that out of uh, Hebrews chapter 9. Let's read together uh, the text. And we'll dive in. Verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a war is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a war takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of God. There is so much uh, going on in this text. There's so much referring back to other parts of Hebrews. There's so much referring uh, to uh, parts of the Old Testament. But our focus is going to be 
on the main theme that's running through, and that is about the blood and the comparison between the blood. Alright, I need to move somewhat quickly uh, through this. So, first question is, what was the purpose of blood? Right? Why all this blood? There's three reasons from this text that for the purpose of blood. The first one is that blood was for the forgiveness for the punishment of law-breaking. Right? And we see that very uh, specifically in verse 22. The Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 3.23 gives us, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 6 verse 23, gives us a truth that is found throughout Scripture. And that is, the wages of sin is death. After Adam and Eve sinned, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That's Genesis 3.15, that's the first promise of a Redeemer. And then in Genesis 3.21, they had made fig, tree, fig leaves for themselves to cover their own nakedness. And what does God do? He sacrifices an animal and covers them with the skin. And there's a very important point behind that, which is, where there is sin, someone must die. The wages of sin is death. An animal died so that they would not instantly die. God promised to, to Abraham later in Genesis that through his line an offspring would come who, through whom the whole world would be blessed. And that promise was ratified in Genesis chapter 15. It's a very interesting uh, text where a number of animals are cut in half and they're, they're laid down and Abraham comes, goes into a deep sleep and, and God passes through uh, the, the animals and he's showing that he would keep his promise to Abraham through that covenant-making ceremony. 430 years after uh, Abraham, we uh, come to the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant, which has been spoken of throughout the book of Hebrews. And so we must ask ourselves very briefly, what is the need? What is the purpose of this whole system of, of sacrifices and, and priests? And Paul tells us in Galatians 3.19, the law was added because of transgressions, sins. The inability of the people of God to keep God's law made their guilt abundantly clear. And so the sacrificial system, one of its purposes under the Old Covenant was to show the people of Israel their guilt, always in front of them, animals dying all the time, Showing their need for a Messiah to finally take away their sin. Showing their need for that seed of the woman promised right back at the beginning of the Bible. And therefore, because of that, Paul says in Galatians 3.24, The law was our guardian until Christ came, that we may be justified by faith. That whole sacrificial system and all the laws existed to be a caretaker for the people of God until the thing that, that those symbols and signs and shadows symbolized came, which is Jesus Christ. Philip Edgecombe Hughes says this, The new covenant has this in common with the old. 
that it too came into operation through the sacrificial death of an innocent victim on behalf of the people. There is a level of continuation. And so that helps us understand Hebrews 9.22, which says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if you say that's primitive and you don't like it, take it up with God. I don't care. Okay? It's just the way it is. God is infinitely valuable. You break his law, he says you must die. And justice demands it. The significance, however, of blood, and this is important. You can't have a blood transfusion. Some of you donate blood. You have a blood transfusion. That's not what's going on here. You can't just have a, why didn't Jesus just get a blood transfusion and then his blood would save? Right? The reason I'm talking about death is because the significance of blood in God's economy comes from the fact that blood comes as a result of death. That's why it matters. The blood is given in death. The wages of sin is death. So forgiveness of trespasses. Another purpose for blood is purification. We see this very clearly in verses 18 to, to 22 of Hebrews 9. It says in verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. As I was, I was reading this, I was so tempted to just do another sermon on these texts here, but I'm not uh, going to. Two Old Testament texts seem to be referred to regarding purification uh, here in verses 18 to 22. You can write them down, look them up yourself uh, later. Uh, one is Exodus chapter 24. And Exodus 24 contains an, an event where the, the Old Covenant was ratified. And so just prior to Moses and all the elders of Israel going up onto Mount Sinai and having a meal with God, ratifying the terms of the Old Covenant, uh, we're told in Exodus 24, verse 5, it says, He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so this purification of this whole thing with, with blood. And then you've got mention of water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and that is coming, I think, from uh, the cleansing of lepers in Leviticus 14. The writer of Hebrews is just pulling in all of these uh, rituals uh, that you can read about in Leviticus. Uh, previously, we saw there was the, the ashes of a red heifer, a dead red heifer, the tongue, tongue twister, used to cleanse a defiled person. Um, and so hyssop was a, a bushy, mint kind of plant. And, and so we had water and scarlet wool and hyssop that's being mentioned here in Hebrews 9 as part of the cleanse, ritual cleansing of lepers in Leviticus uh, 14. What these texts are showing 
is that in the Old Covenant there was a need to use blood for purification for all the rituals of worship. And in the New Covenant, we are told at uh, verse 24, it says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. And something that has been coming up over and over and over again. That the tabernacle and the temple under the Old Covenant were merely copies of the true temple in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. They're picturing something greater. Now, I, I just want to deal with this quickly. I don't think there is a strong argument to say that the heavens themselves, the very presence of God, needed to be purified with blood. I don't think that's what this text is saying. But purification was needed for sinners to be able to come into the presence of God. And that is the, uh, that's the nuance there. The Apostle John makes this point at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. The end of Revelation 21, it says this in verse 27. It says, Nothing unclean will enter it, the holy city of God, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so one of the reasons why the wages of sin is death is that God demands holiness. And through, it's only through the blood of Christ that holiness is possible. One very interesting and, and, and cool thing here uh, that you can just remember, please take this uh, with you uh, when you go. There's a splendid connection between the words of Moses and the words of Christ. I read it earlier, Exodus 24.8, right? One's written in Hebrew, one's written in Greek, but there's a very similar, a very similar statement. Exodus 24.8, Moses said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, it might be very familiar to you if you pay attention during the Lord's Supper, Jesus, the night before he died, says, This is my blood of the new covenant. You could simply translate it, behold the blood of the new covenant. Jesus is the one greater than Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says that one greater from him, a greater prophet will come who will speak on behalf of God. Moses is the one who said, behold, this is the blood of the covenant. And Jesus is the one who says, behold the blood of the new covenant. The better promises of God. All right, and that ties us into the third purpose of blood, which is inauguration of covenants. I don't give English lessons unless absolutely necessary. I think you will find this cool. I hope you will find this interesting. All right? I want to spend a little bit of time in verses 15 to 18. Can you look in your Bibles at that verses 15 to 18? I'm not going to read the whole thing. Now, most of your Bibles in verse 15 are going to say the word covenant twice. All right? In verse 15. It's going to say the new covenant, and then it's going to say the first covenant, which is referring to the old covenant. But the writer of Hebrews starts making a contemporary illustration in verses 16 and 17. All right? It says, 
And so if you're using the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the Elect Standard Version, as I like to call it, um, you will. it's going to say woe, and then it's going to say a woe takes effect only at death. And then in verse 18, it's going back to saying the first covenant. Right? So if you're using an ESV, probably most of you are, it's going to say covenant, covenant, woe, woe, covenant. If you're using a King James Version or a New King James, it's going to say covenant, covenant, testament, testament, covenant. Is that right? Yep. Uh, and if you happen to have a New American Standard, anyone got one of those? No? Okay. A lot of people like them still in this country. It's going to translate all five of those words as covenant. It's going to say covenant, 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 covenant. All right, so why does this matter? The translation teams are looking at the argument that the writer is making, and so they're, they're using their best guess as to what is being meant with the word. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word, Beirath, means promise or, or covenant. There's one main meaning. It's covenant, promise, uh, that's it. Very specific meaning. The New Testament is written in Greek. And the Greek word, diatheke, is used here in Hebrews. And it is used every single time there. Five times in those four verses, there's the same Greek word, yet it's translated differently in many of our English Bibles. <coughs> Now that Greek word has got two meanings. It either means covenant or it can mean last will or last testament. Right? Two different meanings there. Covenants can involve people being alive. We saw that in uh, Genesis 14, which we're talking about with Melchizedek. Uh, Covenants can be made with people being alive. So if you've got a suzerain vassal treaty, a bunch of kings together make a treaty, I'll protect you, you protect me. That's a covenant. But a last will or a last testament is where an inheritance is given. Right? Someone dies, you go for the reading of the last will. And they say, my estate goes to such and such. I don't like that other son, therefore my money's going to uh, that other son. You know what I mean? And it requires someone to be dead to take effect. That's the argument in verses 16 and 17. You don't have a last will unless someone has passed away. Right? Which is what made the, the, the story of the prodigal son so shocking because he says to his father, I want... My inheritance. He's saying, I want you to be dead. Well, the writer of Hebrews is using that second meaning of the Greek word, woe. And he's using it as an illustration of how Jesus' death and his blood brings about covenantal blessings and eternal inheritance. God chooses no symbol flippantly. That's the lesson here. 
which is why it says in verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Was it absolutely required that there had to be a death and there had to be blood for a covenant to be inaugurated in the Old Testament? No. Why did God use blood in these covenants? Because he was pointing ahead. He was shining a light forward to the promised Messiah. We're going to get uh, in a few moments to the benefits of the covenant, but it's important to then see that Hebrews explicitly ties Christ's death to the benefits that come, the benefits that he gives to those who he saves. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, By the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It is because Christ died that he has an inheritance to give. Christ's death and blood is therefore good news. Why do we celebrate a man dying in a horrific fashion upon a cross? Because the way it was done became good news for us. That the deathless Son of God took upon himself mortal flesh as the Son of Man at his incarnation, so that while he was still eternal as God, he was able to die in our place as an innocent man for fallen humanity, and he was therefore raised from the dead to bring about the promised blessings and inheritance of the new covenant as our Redeemer. That's why this matters. That is the gospel. Without it, this church doesn't exist. And that is why there's so much blood. I want to move on to the second question. Why was blood effective? Firstly, because the one who offered the blood under the old covenant, a sinner, the, the priest, offered blood sacrifices on behalf of sinners. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest. He can enter into the presence of God. The one who offered the blood is better. Secondly, the blood was effective because of the blood that was offered. At the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer the blood of a bull for his own sins, and then he would go in and, and, and take the blood of a, an unblemished goat. We read about that in Leviticus 16. No, we're told that Christ offered his own blood. Verse 26 of Hebrews 9, it says, As it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Himself. Right? And Hebrews 10 is going to develop that further. Blood was effective because it was spilt in death. And Jesus' sacrifice means that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant <clears throat> says so in uh, Hebrews 7.22. And it says he is the mediator of a new covenant. He is the one who gives its blessings. His sacrifice is the basis for the surety of the covenant promises. That because he bled and died, God will give this inheritance. And he is ascended to the right hand as priest, so he's able to give these blessings. That is why there is so much blood. 
Let's move on to the last question. How was the blood effective? Two reasons. Let's read once again very uh, quickly verse 15. It says, Therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. That really is the argument. And it's a mouthful, but the first reason is that Christ's blood was effective because it brought about the benefit of eternal redemption from transgressions under the old covenant. You've got to deal with past sin. You can't go in a courtroom and say, yeah, I was uh, guilty of murder, but I'm going to do better in the future. The judge is never going to let that go. One of the reasons why Jesus had to be born a Jew is because he had to keep the law and not transgress the old covenant in order to redeem all those who did break God's law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was all those things. He went to uh, he went to the temple. He celebrated the feast. He kept the law, and that was important to redeem, meaning pay the price of the breaking of the old covenant. And this text, verse fifteen, really gives us an important point. That is that the new covenant is superior to the old because it is able to do what the old could not. And so we must ask ourselves, if Christ died for the sins of the people under the old covenant, we must ask ourselves, how is anyone saved in the Old Testament times? How is anyone saved? And the answer is, by the blood of Jesus. Those that had faith in the promised Messiah and trusted in God's mercy and planned to forgive sin, those people were saved ultimately because of the blood of Jesus. Second reason why the blood was effective is that it brought about the promised eternal inheritance of the new covenant. Dealt with transgressions of the old and it brings about the blessings of new. When it mentions eternal inheritance, it is pointing beyond this life to the next. It's an important truth in, in Christian Christianity. And this is going to be a big theme in chapters 11 and 12, and it's going to be looking beyond to the eternal state, to the new creation, to a better country, to a city to come, to a kingdom which cannot be shaken. All those terms are going to be used for this inheritance that Christ has won. Our response to this internal inheritance that Christ has won through his death and resurrection is joy and it's thanksgiving towards God. Jesus fulfills the divine purpose of all creation, which is that God would dwell amongst his people. You read Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible. That's what's happening. That is how the creation occurred in the beginning. That God would dwell with his people and the people with their God and joy and thanksgiving and love and light and all those good things that was lost. Christ heightens that and makes it only better through his redemption. Eternal life, 
Jesus says in John 17, begins now for those that have faith in him. Begins now, but it finds its fulfillment in glory. And those that, are, that are, those that are Christians know that they will participate in that fullness of the new creation because they know him now. Because he is already in the presence of God. Because he has already completed this work. Peter writes in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter starts this letter to Christians that are scattered all over uh, the, the empire, and he says to them, you have been set apart by the Holy Spirit in Jesus, and you've been sprinkled with his blood. And then he goes on to tell them about the inheritance that they have received, an imperishable inheritance. You've been set apart by Christ. And so therefore we should say the blood was effective because it dealt with our greatest problems in the past and brings about, brings about our greatest need in the future, which is to be with God and to be holy in his presence. I want to bring in three points of application. Firstly, we should simply say that God has been at work. Genesis 3.15 onwards, we have the drama of Scripture, and it is the greatest rescue mission. It is the greatest story ever told. It is the story of redemption. We see God positioning the characters throughout the narrative, throughout the landscape, to pave the way for a true hero. Who is unlike anyone else, he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God has been at work. And the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and all these things has in a sense been scaffolding, setting up what is to come. God has been at work. I want us to think about something. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know what it means that God gave his son? It means he gave him to die a bloody death. It's not a cute verse. That is why there's blood. I want to pull two pieces of application off the last two verses. They might be familiar to some of you. In verse 27 and 28, let's just read them. It says this, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Secondly, don't turn from Jesus. That's what this is telling us. Don't turn from Jesus. Seriously, where else is hope? And he's, he's shout, the writer is just making this point over and over again. Where else is hope? A better society? Well, that's not going very well right now, is it? 
if you are not a believer in Christ, you need to turn to Jesus, right? It says, just as it was appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. You can have all the false bravado of Stephen Fry or Richard Dawkins or one of those guys and say, I'm not scared, I'll talk back to God. No, you will be. You're stupid. He made you. Right? There's just there's just a power imbalance there. You can't you can't say that. God has judges on the fact that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, Paul says in Romans six twenty three, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're not righteous, you're not holy, you're not any of those things. And he says, well, here's, here's a Savior that is. And he offers freely himself to make you right with God. Just trust in him, repent of your sins, trust in him. And That's what Christianity says, that is the good offer of the gospel. Stop living for yourself, live for Christ who died for you. And if, if you are a believer in Christ, don't look for something better. That's incredibly important to these people because these Hebrews are getting tempted to go back, to move away from Jesus. It's unpopular to be a Christian for these people. It's, unpo- it's very unpopular to be a follower of Christ. And the writer is saying to them, don't look for something better because there isn't anything else. Jesus is better. And lastly, the last phrase in this chapter, we are to eagerly wait for him. And I was just reflecting on how how amazing is that? Right? We've been talking about judgment. We've been talking about death. It says that it's appointed for man to die once. It says, basically, you have a divine appointment to die. You don't know when it is, but God does. You have a divine appointment to die. Death is the inevitable consequence of turning away from the source of all life, and it is therefore the wages of sin. We're scared of death. Are you not? Like, I mean, isn't that a natural thing? We're, we're scared of dying. We're scared about what happens to the people that we leave behind. Unless you're a complete heartless sociopath, like, you, you, you care. We're scared of death, but the gospel changes that, and that's why John Owen, I've read a bit of it, I haven't read the whole thing, he wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It's a great title, is it not? The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It says here, instead of fearing death, he says, eagerly wait for Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we, we sit around and do nothing. I'm just waiting for Christ. We become part of his church. We, we work for him, living lives that are influenced by the values of his kingdom, simply in his law, to love God and to love neighbor as himself. And we eagerly wait in Christ as he brings about the recreation of all things, the removal of all the effects of sin of which we are the first fruits. We seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
And we then become not ultimately scared of death because we know we have a Savior who has conquered death. And he conquered death by dying himself. And that is why there is so much blood. Let's pray.